for your opinions initially of the case and my the reason i'm asking this is no one would have pursued this unless they felt that the death mystery was wrong and the other big thing that comes from this entire issue is bhagwan ji's angle coming out so mm. what what were your opinions of the case earlier how did you hear about bhagwan ji as well uh okay so also the first part of your question uh my view about this case was always i mean see if anybody would go through the reports of the shanwas committee and the kosla commission and what the witnesses were saying the plain fact that there were such severe inconsistencies in the uh, witness accounts those who say that they were in the plane that crashed or had seen that plane crashing such severe inconsistency that even a school kid would say that i mean this is just not possible i mean a plane crash is something that uh, that that is a once in a lifetime experience and there are things that you don't just don't forget <laughs> so if if you take your own example if you are traveling with a head of a state of a uh, head of a state and uh, something happens not forbid and you see the things with your own eyes it's unlikely that you will forget whereas here we see that there were these three people saying that they had pulled netaji out of the aircraft one of them said that he had taken netaji to the hospital another said he had taken netaji to first to the hospital so it is absolutely hodgepodge i mean there, there was no reason to believe what they were saying because it was so inconsistent contradictory to each other that was that case was clear but then we never knew what happened if the plane crash did not happen what happened that was the question that we were all talking about and it was in 2004 that uh, anud's first book back from dead came out and where he talked about gumnami baba and bhagwan ji it sounded all very plausible i won't say i was convinced with it before that the hindustan times in 2001 2002 were carrying out its own investigation uh, alongside the justice mukherjee commission they had reached the same conclusion anuj's book was uh, a fallout of that investigation mm-hmm. and then uh, it, i i my first reaction gut feeling towards hindustan times uh, reportage at the time investigation and its conclusion was of revulsion i mean there were many baba theories sadhu theories about it that it was well known and i just thought that this 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 looks like just another baba theory and it's it's ridiculous that a paper like hindustan times is propagating such trash and you so, had you didn't uh, you hadn't re- read uh, the articles written by vn vn arora dr professor arora and his and his team right no no not at that time not at that time okay. those i read much later first uh, i read the hindustan times uh, series then i read anuj's book mm-hmm. and after that once i came back to india in 2006 mm-hmm. it was then that uh, i started uh, interacting with the disciples of bhagwan ji in kolkata and that's when i started seeing the original materials and my curiosity obviously was uh, was aroused and i started going into the depths of it and within uh, a year or two i was more or less uh, sure i mean that by that time i had seen most of the materials 
and uh, i was then i was fairly confident that this indeed is the case dao chandrachur ghosh founding member of mission netaji and co-author of conundrum subhash bose's life after death back in calcutta the matter of the death mystery didn't seem to rest both supporters were growing frustrated by the stonewalling tactics of the government it didn't help that a secretary of the indian embassy to japan ak dhar visited rinkoji temple on behalf of the indian government to pay his respects where netaji's supposed ashes were being held however the stinging blow came from one of netaji's former officers major shanawas khan after being released from red fort shanawas remained in india and joined the congress party by 1955 when he attended a netaji memorial service in calcutta shanawas had become a loyal congress leader devoted to nehru he said that the prime minister was not yet ready for an official probe into the matter finally it was decided that a civil service led unofficial committee would be formed and led by justice radha binod pal for those of you who do not know him dr pal was an eminent judge who took part in the tokyo trials conducted by the allied forces post world war 2 his findings during the trial were so controversial that the allied judges did not include it in their final judgment for this reason even to this day he receives enormous praise and respect in japan dr pal who spent some time in tokyo affirmed to shri chandra bose his doubts regarding the story of the plane crash itself he wrote a letter in 1953 where he stated i could not accept as true the story of netaji's death in formosa in any case i feel that the whole thing demands a thorough investigation statements by individuals made here and there will not convince me as to the truth of the story given out i have reasons to doubt it alarm bells went off in new delhi when they heard the announcement finally under nehru's instructions the shanawas committee was formed to quote find out the circumstances under which shri subhash bose died the prejudice in the statement alone was enough to figure out the outcome and while these debates and arguments were taking place in delhi and calcutta while india's intelligence services were firmly under mi5's watchful care while the indian armed forces were under british generals somewhere within the vast expanse of the himalayan ranges off the indo nepal border two men in the cover of dark knee deep in the bone chilling snow evaded numerous border patrols and crossed into india mahadev prasad mishra who was a teacher in the royal court of nepal left a promising career behind to now embark on an arduous journey with a man who he considered to be his guru as they crossed the border into the ganjaric plains the unknown man fell on his knees with tears in his eyes as the sun dawned the twilight sky from the scorching heat of the deserts of afghanistan to the rough waters of the pacific back into the hard battlefields of southeast asia to the prisons of siberia Bhagwanji, as he would later be known as by his disciples, had walked a long road before coming home. It had been more than a decade since he left his dearest Janani Janmabhoomi to free her from the clutches of British imperialism. With a deep quest for the spiritual and a mission incomplete, Bhagwanji made his way into India, and as he did, an untold destiny started unfolding itself in the annals of history. Namaskar and welcome to India's Guardian Angel.
Jesus that the soil of India is going to be the last theater of war in this part of the world. Friends, I do not know how many of us who are going to participate in the coming battles will survive to see India But whether we survive or not, whether we individually live to see India free or not, we are confident that India shall be free. हमारे सामने एक ही प्रोग्राम है, I do. लड़ाई का इंतजाम करना, लड़ाई शुरू कर देना और कामयाब करना है। पर हाथ में हाथ है क्या? हमारे रास्ते में आएगी सूख, प्यार, तकलीफें, बीमारी। कोई बात नहीं है, हम जिंदा रहेंगे या तो मरेंगे, कोई बात नहीं है। बात को सही बात क्या है, आम बात क्या है, आज इनमें हमारी कामयाबी होगी, इन्हों सराहना The committee was formed with Chanawas Khan, Suresh Bose and S.N. Metra. The first witness to be called on the stand on April 1st, 1955 was Sri Mutaram Lingam Thaywar. Sri Thaywar was an associate of Subhash Bose in the forward bloc who opposed the Congress leadership during the freedom movement. Sri Thaywar said that towards the end of 1949, when Charles Chandra Bose was ailing, he went down to Calcutta to meet Sri Bose. He saw Sri Bose on December 7th and stayed with him for 10 days. They had consultations on the matter as Sri Bose apprehended that he was going to die. After these talks, Sri Thaywar said he left India incognito on December 17th. He crossed the Burma border and entered China where he stayed almost the whole of 1950. He met Netaji in January, but he would not divulge the location. He returned to India in October 1950. He said that the government of India knew that he had visited China, but if it doubted that, he could prove that he had been to China. Mr. Thaywar was known to be an eminent leader in Tamil Nadu, so much so that his statue adorns parliament to this day, a testament to the respect and preeminence he garners from all parts of India. This was an explosive statement coming from a politician of such importance. What's surprising is that in 1949, Sharad Chandra Bose himself wrote an article stating that Netaji was in Red China and the government of India had information about this. Now, he couldn't elaborate on what evidence the government had as his health worsened and he passed away soon after. Thaywar's claim was summarily dismissed as false by the, by the committee. Now, was Netaji in Red China? Well, there has never been any official answer to this question. What is remarkable is that during 1949, there were a great number of public news reports and confidential intelligence reports to state unequivocally that Subhash Bose was in Red China. Quoting from Karandram by Anuj Tharan Chandra Ghosh, in 1949, rumours began to do the rounds in India and elsewhere that Subhash Bose was in China, so much so that when the pro-Soviet-based Bombay tabloid, the Blitz, carried the news headlined, British report Bose alive in Red Continent on 26 March 1949, the American consul there transmitted its text to the Secretary of State under the subject, Ghost of Subhash Chandra Bose. In combination with Mr. Thaywar's statement, Sarat Chandra Bose's report and the Blitz story, it's clear that there was a possibility that Netaji could be in China. In 1946, during J.K. Bosley's interrogation at Red Fort, he revealed that Netaji had plans to contact the Chinese Communist as a means to reach Russia. 
Shah Nawaz did not bother to even consider these crucial pieces of evidence and conduct any further investigations. As we discussed in episode 4, there were a whole host of eyewitness statements that contradicted each other to such an extent that witnesses couldn't even agree on the basic facts of the case itself. For example, at least three people gave three different versions of how Netaji got off the plane and how he was taken to the hospital. The doctors themselves gave varying accounts of the treatment prescribed to Netaji, along with the time of arrival of the body to the time of death. These statements contradicted their previous statements given to the Allied investigative forces in 1945 and 1946. Present among the many witnesses were Habibur Rahman who narrated his version of events of what happened on that fateful day. Remember Habibur Rahman was injured trying to first get out of the plane and then trying to douse the flames off Netaji. At least that was his version. However, a medical examination conducted a few months after the crash revealed no such injuries on his palms but rather on the back of his hands. Shanwaz attributed these contradictory statements and other pieces of crucial evidence to either a lapse of memory or false information or bizarre one-off incidents that could not be explained. And with the backing of Mr. Nehru and the government, hardly anyone rebuked his arguments. During his visit to Tokyo, he failed to interview several top-ranking personalities during the wartime government like General Oshima, General Kawabe, Mrs. Tojo and Mrs. Shidei, General Shidei's wife. Her husband was accompanying Netaji during the 17th August trip. Nor did he ask for access to important wartime documents of that time, which could have shed light on Netaji's movements with General Shidei, who was considered to be an expert on Russian affairs and was assigned to accompany Netaji to Tehran. A German intelligence agency called Interpress published an article in 1949 saying they possessed information about Netaji living in the Soviet Union. But Shanawas never bothered investigating such information. His goal at the end, you see, was to furnish the last moments of Netaji's death. The conclusion of Netaji's death had been reached before the commission began. This was just a bit of window dressing. The only person to defy the government version was Netaji's elder brother, Shishresh Sandra Bose. Mr. Bose was part of the three-man committee formed into the, into the matter. He began asking several inconvenient questions that Shanawas was unwilling to even ask. Questions relating to the original Domain Agency report, the absence of a picture of the dead body, the conspicuous silence of the Japanese government in those days regarding the matter, and much, much more. At the end, he produced a dissenting report, levelling serious charges against Shanawas Khan and the government. His argument was that Netaji was indeed alive and would return to India. However, his report got zero traction in the media, and from then on, Netaji's death became a foregone conclusion in the mind of the people. Shanawas Khan went on to live a high life, becoming minister in both the Nehru and Indira Gandhi government. See, I, I found the whole thing a little bit confusing, to be honest. Shanawas Khan's stand, I found, was very contradictory. On one hand, he writes a report condemning Netaji to death, bowing to Nehru's wishes. And then he also includes in his report the mention of the lost treasure of the INA and a need for its inquiry. This treasure was a large sum of wealth that Netaji had amassed for the freedom movement in East Asia. To this day, there is no definitive answer as to what happened to the money. Shanawas himself tried very hard to visit Formosa, but the crash took place, but Nehru forbade it. The answer to why he did this came out during the Mukherjee Commission investigation. During the course of this particular inquiry, one thing came out and I played, of course, a role in that. 
very simple straight thing if there's a if there's a death takes the crime takes place for example in kanpur you cannot have an inquiry in ilabad you'll have to go on the spot you have to do inquiry on the spot inquiry now for some reason the government of india from right from 1947 have an allergy towards taiwan they don't want to go there and make a search shanawas wanted to go there but he was dissuaded by the uh, then government mr gd khosta also was not allowed then mr samar guha and mr atul bhari vajpayee literally forced the indra government to let him visit there but when he reached there he refused to talk to that government why would you be going to taiwan you have to talk to the government authorities if something happened here 50 years ago i will get nothing by way of evidence only evidence will come from the local authorities the police station the east of so on so forth but mr khosla was not interested in that thing so it was only one person mr mukherjee was the only person who went to taiwan in fact even that's the irony by that time he took over mr vajpayee was the prime minister and mr vajpayee did the same thing which indira gandhi had done they would not allow him to go to taiwan same problem no no we don't have diplomatic relation and also on i have reason now you have intelligence relation with taiwan you spy on chinese using the taiwanese you have business relation with them then there's no problem you have a taiwanese bank in delhi there's no problem but over a small issue of netaji is there you you create in you know, so much of excuses you know that's not done so the uh, then what i did was in 2003 i contacted some people and eventually as a result of those you know uh, uh, off the record discussions i wrote to the taiwan government i asked them that the same question on behalf of the indians ki tell me whether or not there was a plane crash or not so they told me there was no plane crash and we have checked the records so i that data i transferred to the mukherjee commission which is our part of record and commission then got into direct connection with the taiwan government and it helped them a great lot because when they visited taiwan so the ministry of external affairs in that country you know provided some data to commission and this thing came out that according to the government of taiwan from whatever data they have with them uh, they have rejected the plane crash so he said there was no plane crash at that point in time so this was the you know like driving a nail into the coffin of the plane crash story on a cool dusky evening near singarnagar lucknow bhagwan ji entered the pn bajal optical store accompanied by two bodyguards the 58 year old was dressed in saffron robes with a headgear hung loosely above the ears similar to the one worn by swami vivekanand standing tall at 5 feet 10 inches with a clean shave and a fair complexion he was someone who couldn't go unnoticed even in a crowd it was a fairly busy night at the store when bhagwan ji decided to check out some new frames he took off his headgear to try on one of the frames when all of a sudden there was a hush silence at the store the people there couldn't believe who they were seeing in front of them is this even possible but he was dead right suddenly a young man fell down on bhagwanji's feet and screamed those words which which were perhaps echoing loudly in the minds and hearts of all those who were present netaji Bhagwanji rose immediately and left the store without uttering a single word never to return to BN Bajal. It was a close call and he was almost caught. Despite taking all the precautions, a moment of lapse nearly exposed his otherwise secret life.
Ever since his return to India, he needed secrecy. People were after him, especially in India, where the British still had control over the intelligence agencies. Although originally from Bengal, he moved to the state of Uttar Pradesh, which became his home base for the next 30 years. He moved from district to district, city to city, house to house. Beginning at Eta, he moved to Umarpur, then to a village called Saket, then to Menpuri, where he lived for two more years, and from there he went to Lucknow. Mahadeva Prasad Mishra stood by his guru and served him constantly. By the time he reached Lucknow, Mishraji also got his daughter, Saraswati Devi, and his grandson, Rajkumar Shukla, the latter two who would serve Bhagwanji until the very end. Now, some people may consider Bhagwanji to be Subhash Bose, but to prove his identity, we must first walk into what we know of his life and understand what kind of life he lived in India, who he met, who he spoke about, who he spoke to, where he lived, and how he lived. Much of Bhagwanji's life in India was spent in spiritual sadhana. He was known by his followers as a yogi of the highest order. He also seemed to possess a great deal of knowledge, especially in politics, current international affairs, and history. This part of his life is shrouded in mystery. In fact, in many conversations he had with his followers, many of which were recorded in paper, he indicated his involvement in a host of international affairs, including the Vietnam War, the Bangladesh Liberation Movement, and others. Now let me be clear, these are statements which he made and which were recorded by his followers. Whoever he was, whatever he said, this podcast is dedicated to giving you the best possible evidence available, unaltered, so that you as an audience can decide what the identity of the person is. I'm not saying I believe everything he said, but I'm not also disbelieving everything he said. For example, during the 1971 war, he spoke of the fall of the Jashore cantonment in East Pakistan three days before the news was made public. Mind you, he was living in a remote corner in UP in a small village at that time. He also spoke of American soldiers being high on drugs during the Vietnam War in 1964 at a time where such information was not available even in America. This begs the question, How does a man who lives seemingly isolated from the world know all this information? For now, I'll stick to his strange ways and his strange characteristics. Here's Anuj Thar on Bhagwanji's features. He was very, very strange character. He turned up uh, one day from, uh, uh, he uh, surfaced in Lucknow in 1955-56. I do not know which year, but either of these two years. Very strange person. He would not uh, show his face to anybody. He was accompanied by one Sanskrit teacher, uh, later joined by his uh, daughter, the teacher's daughter, and they were more or less uh, servants to him. And uh, he would not show his face to anybody. He will not talk to anybody. He will not uh, give you anything in writing. He will just put something on a piece of slate and give it to you. If you were to enter his room, he will either cover his face with a, a monkey cap or something. So he was completely, he was, no, he was not there. So nobody knows, nobody meets, so on and so forth. But there were rumors that the D then chief minister of UP, Sampoandam, used to come and see him at night. By and by, eventually, 
things you know start to come out one day somebody heard him speak so they say his pronunciation is very clear is very very crystal clear pronunciation uh, speaks english with accent bangla is very clear calculation accent whatever whoever because in bangla those who are outside from calcutta they would know uh, bangla can be spoken in different accent hindi has accent. i have a typical punjabi haryanvi accent of hindi english even my english is i have a punjabi accent so deep um, so in bangla you have a different accent people from who have lived in calcutta so that is a calcation accent so this man had a calcation accent whoever he was he had lived in calcutta for quite some time so the way he would pronounce his sanskrit shloka was and people said extraordinary voice they've never heard of because for most people he was a person but then and, and as it there were people who for some reason they saw his face and they subsequently told some of them told commission so their view was that what they were seeing was exactly a replica of subhashan bos only thing he was old so this is what happened so he wherever he lived there would be controversy people would get suspicious ki who is this man he is not coming out at night there are cars coming people are coming so on so forth what is thing? so then he would change places and some for some reason everywhere there will be netaji link story for example one story he himself told once that he wanted to have his eye glasses changed Kashmir was a domestic policy failure and Nehru's blunders did not end there. China's annexation of Tibet turned world favor against them bitterly. Had Nehru put up a strong protest by moving his military on the northern border or even going to the UN with strong American and British support, perhaps the invasion would not have lasted as long as it did. In fact, once he even justified the invasion by saying, "You must remember that Tibet has been cut off from the rest of the world." for a long time and socially speaking is very backward and feudal changes are bound to come there to the disadvantage of the small ruling class and the big monasteries i can very well understand these feudal chiefs being annoyed with the new order we can ha- hardly stand up as defenders of feudalism however on 9th of february 1951 the city of tawang which was initially under tibetan control was bought into the indian fold thanks to major bob kating formerly of the assam rifles this story remains an interesting tale rarely found in the pages of history there are indications that this was the brainchild of then ib director b n malik who was given permission by sardar patel to bring tawang into the indian administrative fold nehru despite being the minister for external affairs was kept unaware of the issue until tawang was firmly under indian hands By the way, it was the same Bian Malik who advocated for firm military action against the Chinese after the Tibet takeover. Nehru went on to sign the Panchshil Agreement with Chu Enlai on 29 April 1954 in Peking. The agreement was signed while the borders between both the countries were yet undefined. The treaty on its own referred to Tibet as part of China and Nehru seemed to be okay with it. Furthermore, India ended up giving up a great deal of their trade routes from Kalimpong to West Bengal. The Indian mission in Lhasa was called back as well. What was far worse and in fact what went ignored by the Indian government was that since 1951 the Chinese were building the Xinjiang highway in the disputed area around Aksai Chin. When Nehru found out about the highway he said in parliament no one even goes there not a single blade of grass grows there actually he found out about it before 
hid it from the people until he could not hide a whole host of Chinese aggressions that were happening in the border. We'll get to that as, uh, as we move along in the podcast. The other point of contention was the borders of Northeast India and Tibet, which was then known as the MacMahon Line. Neither country in the long discussions and meetings could come up with an agreement on demarcating the border region. It was using these undemarcated lines that China would later cause grievous harm to India in the coming years. Hence the Panchil Agreement was really a bluff and bluster agreement which in its essence showed the lack of depth of foreign policy experience in India. The great doctrine Panchil was born in sin because it was enunciated to put the seal of our approval upon the destruction of an ancient nation which was associated with us spiritually and culturally. It was a nation which wanted to live in its own life and it sought to have been allowed to live its own life. Acharya Kriplani His Holiness Dalai Lama wrote poignantly in his autobiography. Yet, I was conscious that outside Tibet, the world had turned its back on us. Worse, India, our nearest neighbour and spiritual mentor, had tacitly accepted Peking's claim to Tibet. In April 1954, Nehru had signed the new Sino-Indian Treaty, which included a memorandum known as Panchi. According to this treaty, Tibet was part of China. Bhagwanji in his later years commented on China and said, China is a past master in war strategy, craftiness and war diplomacy, statecraft, all sorts of war and their execution, most shrewd calculations. They have been so for thousands of years. They are becoming communist does not mean they have lost their heritage. Some believe that the war could have been avoided had the army been strengthened or maybe if Krishna Menon or BM Call or even Nehru were not in the picture. While others say Nehru's inexperience itself in comparison to a battle-hardened Mao showed glaringly. Next episode, we look at the results of the Panchil Agreement with the disastrous results of the Indochina War while we discuss an important milestone in the Netaji death mystery. So, if you like this episode, do share with your friends and family and subscribe to the show to get the latest episodes or new interviews I have to share. Until next time, Namaskar.